Hello friends, welcome back to the show. My guest today is J. Michael Bailey. He's a Northwestern University professor of psychology, a researcher, and an author known for his work on sexual orientation and human sexuality. Scientific research has had public scrutiny for a long time, but Michael's most recent study was placed under so much pressure from upset dissidents that the journal formally retracted it. Today, we get to find out just why human sexuality is such a dangerous topic to look into. Expect to learn what it's like to be in the middle of a global cancellation furor, just what exactly the concept of gynandromorphophilia is, how malleable your sexual orientation is, whether lesbians are more likely to become straight again, if bisexuality even exists, how accurate our gaydars are, and much more. This episode is brought to you by Crafted London. Finding men's jewellery that doesn't suck is very difficult, and Crafted London have nailed it. They're the number one men's jewellery company worldwide. They're sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof, and gymproof. They've got custom designs in gold and silver, necklaces, chains, pendants, bracelets, rings, and earrings. If you've seen me on any of the big cinema episodes on YouTube wearing a necklace, it will always be from Crafted. I absolutely love it. It works with formal wear, casual wear, whether it's daytime or nighttime. All of the pieces are super high quality. The designs are great, and uh, I love them. That's It's all I wear. Also, they have an unlimited lifetime guarantee so if your piece breaks for any reason at any point during the entire life of the product they will give you a new one for free get a 15 percent discount site-wide on everything by going to bit.ly slash cd wisdom and using the code mw15 at checkout that's bit.ly slash letter c letter d wisdom and mw15 at checkout all right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've won Whoop for over four years now, since way before they were a partner on the show, and it is the only wearable I have ever stuck with because it's the best. It is so innocuous, you do not remember that you've got it on, and yet it tracks absolutely everything 24-7 via something from your wrist. It tracks your heart rate, it tracks your sleep, your recovery, all of your workouts, your resting heart rate, your heart rate variability, how much you're breathing throughout the night. It puts all of this into an app and spits out very simple, easy to understand, and fantastic fantastically usable data. It's phenomenal. I am a massive, massive fan of Whoop, and that is why it's the only wearable that I've ever stuck with. You can join for free, pay nothing for the brand new Whoop 4.0 strap, plus you get your first month for free, and there's a 30-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it for free, try it for free, and if you do not like it, after 29 days, they will give you your money back. Head to join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. That's join.whoop.com slash modern wisdom. 
But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome J. Michael Bailey. Michael Bailey, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. What happened with your recent article? So the short answer is that our recent article has been retracted by the publisher of the journal Archives of Sexual Behavior, where it was published. Retraction is something I've never had an article retracted before, and it's something that I've associated with terrible uh, things like fraud, plagiarism, grievous mistakes. None of that is true about our article. Uh, Frankly and honestly, our article was retracted because of the ideas and the evidence it presented that angered transgender activists and their allies who pressured the publisher, who either agreed with them uh, based on politics or chickened out or were worried about business concerns. I can't read their mind, obviously. But I will say that the retraction was a sham. Um, I, I would also say that the retraction has backfired entirely from their perspective. Our article has gotten far more attention than it ever would have. The publisher Springer Nature Group keeps metrics on this. Our article has been downloaded almost 100,000 times, which is you know, uh, that's not perhaps a big deal for mainstream media, but for an academic article, that is extreme. Uh, we have received more news coverage. We're about um, 40, ranked 40 out of 400,000 articles of about the same age in terms of media coverage. Uh, here we are talking, you know, I'm on a big co- podcast with you uh, and, uh, there've been articles and so on. So I'm not hurting. Uh, I just want people to download and read our article and don't pay attention to the retac- retraction notice. It, it's meaningless. If people want to get a hold of the now forbidden article, where are they, where should they go? Same place they ever did. Our article was published open access. That means we actually had um, funding from uh, Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine, uh, SEGM, to um, uh, publish the article for free reading. You know, most articles, academic articles, have a paywall that non-academics can't get through easily. There's no paywall. The retraction simply means, uh, for practical purposes, that Springer stamped the words retracted article on every single page of the article. 
which you can, it doesn't affect your ability to read it. And frankly, I uh, wear those words as a badge of honor now. That makes it kind of sexy. It makes it, it feels like it's a top secret seal. So what's, there's someone that's listening that wants to go and search. What's, what should they search for on the internet in order to get this article up in the right form? Uh, so what I search in order to go to the site to keep track on our current metrics, you know, I'm really waiting for when we get a hundred thousand dollar view, I'm sorry, 100,000 views, uh, Diaz, D-I-A-Z, Bailey, B-A-I-L-E-Y, R-O-G-D for rapid onset gender dysphoria, which is what it's about. And then you'll have uh, links to choose from. Choose the one that says Springer, and that'll take you right to the site. You can read the article right there. Okay, so we flirted with it so far. What was in your forbidden study, which was so reprehensible that caused it to be retracted and and stamped with a wax seal? I, I'll tell you in a moment, but... I just want to give a, a bit of background. This article was published by me and a co-author, Susanna Diaz. That is not her real name. I don't know her real name. She is the mother of a gender dysphoric child whom she believes has rapid onset gender dysphoria which is rapid onset gender dysphoria is something we need to talk about. I assume that your audience doesn't necessarily know what it is. It's very important. And it is the reason why uh, the trans activists came after us. Rapid onset gender dysphoria is the explanation of the surge in cases of gender dysphoria that has happened over the past decade and especially the past five years. The idea is this, a subset of gender dysphoric cases, and now it's by far the greatest percentage, are adolescent girls who never showed any signs of gender dysphoria in childhood. They were not tomboys. They were not masculine. They did, however, have issues. A lot of them had some mental health problems. They had some social problems and so on. In adolescence, they tended to hang out with a crowd that was unconventional and progressive and ideological. And they got the idea, based on ideology, that all of their problems are due to underlying transgender that they never knew of before. They suddenly or rapidly announced, or they decided that they were transgender, and they announced to their parents. And many of these girls, it's mainly girls, about three quarters, There may be some boys too, but we should talk about them separately. A lot of them are demanding very serious treatments, including medical treatments. 
they want testosterone, which has very serious effects on the body. And some of them want surgery, like the amputation of their breasts. And some of them are getting this. Our evidence in our article uh, is entirely consistent with that. We surveyed uh, 1,655 parents of youth whom the parents believed had this syndrome. Three quarters were of the youth were girls. The parents said that indeed these uh, youth had pre-existing mental health issues and that the mental health issues actually preceded any indication of gender issues by four years. That's a long time. The youth who were most likely to socially transition, now social transition means uh, changing their pronouns, changing their style of dress, changing what they call themselves, boy or girl. The youth most likely to socially transition were the ones with the most problems. That was also true for medical transition, which was uh, thankfully rare. Only about 7% uh, had sought medical or had obtained medical treatment, whereas about 60% had uh, taken many steps to social transition. Parents said after they socially transitioned, they got worse. And the best... What does, what does worse mean? They became less happy. They became less close to their parents. They decompensated. And the best predictor of uh, transition was uh, that the family had received a referral to a gender specialist. And if parents visited a gender specialist, they usually felt that the gender specialist pressured them to transition their child. So th there were some other interesting findings too, but those were the ones that got uh, people upset. And I think those are probably the most important findings because they are consistent with the idea of rapid onset gender dysphoria. Rapid onset gender dysphoria was first proposed by Lisa Lippmann, uh, who published the first paper in 2018. She also received tremendous pushback. Her The journal where she published her article did not retract it, but they did uh, make her make changes to her original article. And she suffered personal con consequences. Brown University, where she was, cut off their ties with her. She, you know, she lost contracts with Brown University. Activists cannot stand the idea of rapid onset gender dysphoria. And I understand why, because it is threatening to their belief system. They're strong, they strongly believe that gender dysphoria is always real. 
and that the best way to proceed is to transition as quickly as possible. And furthermore, that youth are always right when they say that they are gender dysphoric, that they're trans, just believe them. All of these are contradicted by the idea of rapid onset gender dysphoria. And our study was strongly consistent with the existence of rapid onset gender dysphoria. I will admit that ours is only the second major study of this phenomenon, and there's plenty of work to do. And I don't think that we've got this nailed shut so that everybody is obligated to see this world as we do. But it's an important study. And instead of trying to silence our research, it would have been better if the skeptical had done their own studies to try to clarify what they thought was going on. But of course, they didn't want to do that. See if I'm right with my conception of the sort of two current explanations for what's going on with regards to uh, the increase that we've seen over the last 10 years or so. One theory posits that the world's degree of acceptance of trans people at large has changed. It's called the the left-handedness argument uh, online sometimes, which is that uh, during the Middle Ages, if you were left-handed, you were often accused of being a, a witch or a wizard or something, uh, and it would cause you to be ostracized or sometimes killed or punished socially in, in some form or another, uh, which meant that I think maybe only 3% of people were left-handed during the Middle Ages. Uh, but then when left-handedness is no longer seen as wicked and it's socially accepted, I think the true number of left-handed people is closer to maybe 12%, let's say. So you see an increase in the number of people who identify as left-handed, I suppose. Uh, they can be their true self, their true left-handed selves uh, because there is no longer social stigma attached to it. There is uh, a camp that argues that the rapid increase that we have seen in the number of people identifying as transgender over the last decade to two decades or so has been due to this um, uh, releasing of the glass ceiling and, and, and judgment by the group at large. Uh, the alternative theory which is being put forward is one of social contagion. Uh, that explains why females in particular, the F to M transition, are particularly susceptible to this. Females are more um, socially aware, socially malleable and influenced. It's part of their sort of intersexual competition and status um, measuring uh, apparatus that they have a, a, a greater susceptibility to trends around them because they are it's important for them to remain part of the tribe in that regard which would explain or be part of the explanation for why girls seem to be more impacted by this uh, ever increasing number it's almost like a mimetic uh, sort of feedback loop that's occurring how far away am i and what have i missed in terms of that conception of the landscape you put it beautifully better than I did. <laughs> so you should have got me on the paper. I could have yeah. been cancelled as well. Yes. yes. You're consider yourself a co-author on future research. Uh, well, yeah, I, actually, I can take it. I, I, I get enough stick on the internet <laughs> as, as it is already. Okay. So what is, 
first question, is it impossible for these two worlds to exist together? Is there a blending of rapid onset gender dysphoria with the um, activists' theory about, about this? Is there a way that those two worlds could coexist? Certainly. And I suspect they do. It's, it's a question of which is predominating. Uh, obviously, we become much more tolerant of the transgender fairly recently. Uh, I wrote a book in 2003, and people back then thought that transsexuals were really weird, interesting, but weird, and people were uncomfortable around them. Now I think, if anything, they're thought to be cool. Uh, and I'm glad that tolerance has increased for the transgender. But I also think that it's important to realize that <clears throat> there may be trade-offs. I don't think we need to be intolerant, but I do think that we need to be aware that attitudes affect what people choose to do. Being transgender is partly a decision that a person makes. Take uh, a very, for example, a very masculine female. Well, she might decide, well, you know, I'm a, just a masculine teenage girl. Uh, I like playing baseball. I, you know, I'll just be a girl. Uh, but, or she may say, well, gosh, you know, I, I could imagine being a boy plus, you know, I, I get a lot of cred if I am transsexual. And also really something we haven't mentioned yet, which is happening, which I think is negative, is the binding up of transgender identity and victim status. And I just think that that's a problem with our uh, world right now, that we're promoting victim status, not just among the transgender, but all kinds of phenomena. And I just think it's very negative. It creates a, a perverse incentive for people to pedestalize things which are actually negative in the long term. Yes. Self-harm. You know, if self-harm gives you a degree of prestige somehow in whatever upside-down Boston world it is, there is now an incentive for people to do a thing which there should be a disincentive for them to do. So you, you, there is social renown now for self-harm or for um, uh, MP, uh, multiple personality disorder. I don't know whether you saw on TikTok <laughs> last year there was a trend of people, um, they would have their others. I can't remember what the word was. It's like that other, the, the other versions of them would, would come out and I'm a this person and I'm a that person. Um, which again, you know, I I'm pretty sure, who was the guy that created eugenics? Who was the dude that did it in the 1900s? Uh, Francis Galton. Francis Galton managed to make himself go insane by worshipping a doll as a deity, right? My point being that you can, you can induce all manner of crazy psychological maladies if you believe them hard enough. Uh, that, I, so I don't want to weigh in on Galton because I don't know what you're just talking about. And I do know a fair about 
fair amount about Galton. But what the other thing that you said, the key thing is absolutely true and really important and really fascinating that if people believe they can enact all kinds of things. And when I say enact, I don't mean they're pretending exactly. They're acting as if they're acting in accordance with their beliefs. This is not the first go-around for multiple personality disorder. We had an epidemic in the uh, early 1990s that was associated with an epidemic of recovered memories of sexual abuse. This was young women typically who went to therapy with a therapist who believed in this, who persuaded these women that their fathers typically had severely sexually abused them repeatedly over years, despite these women never having any uh, memory of this. And of course, these memories, these recovered memories were false. They didn't happen. Uh, And a subset of these women uh, also came to believe that they were multiple personality disorder. And I I think that this, what's happening now with ROGD, rapid onset gender dysphoria, is uh, the same thing. And the women that, the, the big difference is that the girls this is happening to are getting it younger, 14, 15, 16, instead of 24, 25, 26. And they're getting it from their peers rather than a a therapist. Otherwise, I suspect uh, the same kinds of people are involved at both epidemics both times. Why why would it be the case that there are um, psychological risk factors like OCD, autism spectrum disorder, and, and a few others? Why would they be predictive of ROGD? Autism gets thrown around a lot as very common. I I am not as impressed as many people are by the evidence for autism. Uh, For one, the diagnosis of autism has become so vague, I don't even know what it means anymore. It's become quite overdiagnosed. Um, our, the youth in our study uh, did have an excess of formal diagnoses, but they were very general anxiety and depression. Um, why would women with these emotional problems have this susceptibility? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, the 1990s epidemic, these were somewhat older individuals, and so they had more time to get accurate diagnoses. And the number one associated diagnosis was borderline personality disorder, which is associated with identity disturbance, not knowing exactly who you are, what you want to be, being manipulative, being prone to extreme emotions. Uh, Now, do I have an explanation why it's they who uh, are most susceptible to these false ideas. I don't think I do. I don't think I do. I had a conversation with David Geary a couple of months ago, 
and uh, David. Lucky you. Fascinating guy. Absolutely yeah. fascinating. Phenomenal episode. And one of the things that I learned when speaking to him, he was the first person that introduced me to the concept of uh, rapid onset gender dysphoria. Um, the group that uh, the another ideology that would be associated with some of the people who seem to be suffering rapid onset gender uh, rapid onset gen gender dysphoria would be a denial of biological differences between men and women. The fascinating thing that's oddly sort of recursive and cyclical and almost ironic if it wasn't so um, odd is that the very reason that we have a sexed difference in the number of F to M transitions is precisely because of the biological difference between men and women. It is the biological difference between men and women that predisposes these very goals to the uh, increased susceptibility of transition and that's the same group that is denying it. So it's both the supply and the demand and the denial that kind of all rolled up into one. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, they, they have a very uh, strange set of beliefs that are mutually contradictory. For example, they, they believe in the idea of innate gender identity that may be hidden and so on. But if it's an innate gender identity, then and that men usually have one and women usually have another <clears throat> that's got to be a biological difference uh yeah i i uh i i think that their science is not very um coherent scientific i don't i don't think that's going to be a very uh useful way to persuade them what are the given you've had this relative landmark study, you know, one of only two, massive end size of whatever it was, 1,655 pairs? 1,655 parents okay. reporting on, each parent reporting on a child of theirs. Yeah. Got you, yeah. Um, what, what, do you, what are the implications of this moving forward? What have you thought about sort of next steps and such? Well, our ne my next step, I'm a, you know, I'm an academic, I'm a researcher, I'm not a, clinician, uh, I think that we need to get uh, better and more detailed evidence. And I'm involved in uh, what I think is going to be a really important uh, study that is about to launch this summer. It's in collaboration with Lisa Lippman, who is the person who first studied rapid onset gender dysphoria. And Ken Zucker, who is uh, one of the world's leading experts in gender dysphoria. Uh, all three of us have <laughs> been canceled at least once. Uh, so we're uh, the collabor canceled collabor collaboration, but uh, it, we also are experts who are unafraid to stay in here. We're, in this study, we're going to be recruiting both um, gender dysphoric adolescents directly and their families. And we have a, a very extensive survey about, you know, mental health and gender feelings about gender history of gender steps taken toward transition and so on. Uh, we hope to enroll thousands and we're going to follow these people up over five years at least to see how they turn out and to see how that affects happiness.
are the ones who transition going to eventually be happier than the ones who didn't? For example, that's that's a big question. Fascinating. Yeah, fascinating. I suppose it's one of those things where um, being able to spin ex explanations without the scientific backing can be done at lightning speed, but being able to test the hypotheses with science is actually a pretty arduous task. So you are always going to be playing catch up behind whatever the wake is that's left in terms of people's bro science. That's exactly right. We sometimes have been frustrated ourselves. The scientific process is slow in part for bureaucratic reasons. We have to be very careful to get ethics approval for this, which, by the way, was the reason, the ostensible reason, not the true reason, the ostensible reason why my latest article was retracted. What's the story there? What, what, what was the reason that they gave you? The reason was this. Susana Diaz is not an academic. She just went ahead and put up a survey. She's allowed to do that. She's allowed to publish such a survey. I am an academic. I have constraints. Any research that I do, I have to get approved by something called an Institutional Review Board, IRB, for ethics. Now, the data were already collected. It's too late to go through IRB. I checked with my IRB and they said, well, she didn't have to, and you seem to be okay being a co-author on this. But Susanna had not done this very legalistic thing that was a conventional informed consent, which is basically, this is exactly what you're going to be doing. Do you consent? That is what Springer uh, said was lacking. That's why they retracted the article. Here's why that's ridiculous. She made it very clear to parents what the survey was about. They agreed <laughs> by actually completing the survey. The last line of the survey said, we're going to publish this online when we get enough data. And that's something that Springer also said. She said, you didn't tell them that their data were going to be published. Well, of course they want this published. They believe these parents are sick of ROGD being shoved to the side, being silenced. That's part of the reason why they wanted to participate in the first place. So that that's the reason they gave. Uh, I don't believe it for a second. But, you know, in, in our new research that we will be launching soon, we went through all the IRB uh, procedure. We are so covered <laughs> that uh, there's not going to be any chance of any problem like that. Moving on to some of the other work that you've done, what is the typical sexual orientation of F to M and M to F people who identify as trans? Well, I want to start with what was typical 
20 years ago and before, which, which was pretty well established. Back then, most F2Ms, that is NATO females who wanted to become men, first of all, they were um, adults before they were able to achieve that. There was no transitioning of children or even adolescence. Um, almost all of the female to males were female attracted or in the vernacular of sexology, homosexual female to ma male transsexuals, uh, though about 10% were uh, attracted to um, men. For male to female, these are natal female, I'm sorry, natal males who want to become women. There were two types. The first type was the, the type perhaps we are most familiar with, the kind that comes to mind immediately. It would be a, a male who was feminine from early childhood, little boy who wanted to be a girl, who became an adolescent who was basically a girl. And then uh, when he could get surgery, he did in adulthood. That type uh, was male attracted and sexology called that a homosexual male to female transsexual. Uh, Jazz Jennings, I don't know if you know who Jazz Jennings is. She's a reality TV show. Uh, I have considered her that type, though I'm less sure now for uh, various reasons. But the other type is at least as common, but it is quite unfamiliar because nobody talks about it. And it is autogynephilic male-to-female transsexualism. Autogynephilia is a sexual orientation, I guess, whereby a man is sexually aroused by the idea of being a woman. Most of these natal males are attracted to other people in the world, and they're attracted to women. But they are also attracted to, and sometimes much more attracted to, a woman that they create inside themselves. It starts typically in adolescence where they will put on their mother's panties and bra, look at themselves in the mirror and masturbate, fetishistic cross-dressing. Many of them will have fantasies about having breasts in a vulva, and some of them will actually do what they need to to get those. Autogynephilia is very controversial because trans activists have tried to sweep it under the rug. They're embarrassed by it. I'm not. I, I don't judge these people. Also, many autogynephilic transgender persons experience the theory as a narcissistic injury. 
because it really means a lot to them to think of themselves as like women. But I'm saying, and the theory says, not my theory, it's some, something that I uh, endorse, but I didn't come up with it. The theory says they're not like women. They're men with this weird sexuality. And so that hurts their feelings. Um, so I published a book in 2003 called The Man Who Would Be Queen. And uh, as only about a third of the book was about adult transsexualism, including autogynophilia. And the trans activists back then, a few of them got so mad at what I wrote that they tried to ruin my life. Uh, briefly, I thought they might, uh, but you know, they did back then, uh, what is happening to our paper now? They, they caused a Streisand effect. <laughs> so more and more people have heard of autogynophilia, including persons with autogynophilia. And I want to stress that many of the, many autogynophilic males are great people. In my experience, if they are open and honest, they're admirable. I have many autogynophilic followers on Twitter. I have some autogynophilic friends and so on. Um, and th these people are angry at the activists who have tried to censor any discussion of autogynophilia. It has prevented us from knowing things like the best way that autogynophilic individuals should live their lives. Should they transition? Should they not transition? We don't know. The study studies ha haven't been done because people haven't even felt free to ask the questions. Is there a natal female equivalent? Have you ever come across anyone that is the opposite of autogynophilia? <clears throat> this is controversial. And that should be that yeah. should be the preface for every <laughs> single sentence that well, you say. This is controversial, I would say, scientifically. I don't think anybody is politically upset about this, at least yet. Give it time. So the word for that would be autoandrophilia. And I know um transgender uh persons who insist that there really is autoandrophilia. Uh, there's a guy who uh, named Phil Illy, I-L, Phil Illy, I-L-Y, I think. He's about to publish a book called uh, Autoheterosexuality. Very smart guy, uh, but he believes uh, that autoandrophilia uh, occurs commonly among transgender females, 
I am less convinced. You know, I'm I'm being a hard ass scientist. You know, I maybe, but I I I kind of doubt it because male and female sexuality are so different. Autogynephilia is something that requires a male type sexuality, which is very focused and fixed and strong. And autogynephilia occurs kind of sporadically. A, a, a male finds out on his own and becomes, even though he's never heard of it before, it dominates his early sex life. And I'm really kind of skeptical that that happens in natal females, but we'll see. We'll see. Does that, if someone, and if it's common that somebody that's never heard of it before kind of stumbles upon this thing, this particular interest, this orientation, does that suggest that there is a biological disposition precursor? I would bet more money than I have that we will find that eventually. I think autogynephilia is strongly biological. Now, can I prove that? No. But what is going to make a 14-year-old boy decide to put on his mother's panties and go into the bathroom and look at himself and become aroused and so on? Nobody teaches him that. You know, there's a lot of I interest. I should hope not. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of interest now, uh, especially among uh, gender-critical types, about uh, something called sissy hypnoporn, which is it's a type of pornography consumed by autogynephilic males. And they're saying that this porn is creating autogynephilia. Well, I, I don't believe it. I, I feel like these guys have this interest and they're finding the porn. I, I don't think anything plausibly is going to raise this idea in somebody that doesn't already have the interest. The other word that I learned when looking at some of your work is mm. gynandromorphophilia. Mm. One of the longest words I think I've ever said in my life. <laughs> What's gynandromorphophilia? Gynandromorphophilia. So I'm going to say a word that I, I think is fine, but um, some people are touchy about it. Gynandromorphophilia is uh, sexual attraction to she-males. What I mean by a she-male is a natal male trans woman who has both breasts and a penis still. Um, you know, I, I assume I can see you, it. I can see. I can. I can see it in my mind's eye. Yep. Well, it, it's not hard to find it online. That that is a kind of pornography I have come across, uh, and it actually is uh, quite a common form of pornography. And even I think just plain old normal straight men get into that sometimes. But they're, they're different than the kind of men who need that and prefer it. And for example, I had a, I had a girlfriend at one time whose ex-husband uh, 
have that preference. And in order for them to have sex, they needed to bring a picture of a she-male on the computer screen so he could look at it and become aroused. That became a problem for her. I but, can imagine I can imagine yeah. that that would create complications, yes. Yeah. But that's, you know, I, I, some other just plain old, I think mostly just plain old straight men, they just, I think, don't have the hang-up about the penis being there too. This uh, is what, you know, back in the 90s, you know, on Alan Partridge, which is a famous British comedy show, one of his friends, it turns out, was going to Thailand and he comes back and all he wants to hear about is the ladyboys. Right. All he wants to hear about is ladyboys. Tell me about the ladyboys, he keeps on saying. Yeah, that's right. The ladyboys, that's that's what they are. Yeah, They still tour as ladyboys of Bangkok in the UK. I don't know if that's the same in the US, but the, I mean, there's posters everywhere for ladyboys of Bangkok. To my knowledge, they don't come here, but... Um, you know, there, there are um, shemale escorts that you can find online. Um, I, I knew in writing my book, uh, the 2003 book called The Man Who Would Be Queen, I actually at that time knew some transsexual uh, prostitutes, some of whom had worked as she-male prostitutes, and then they uh, got surgery and continued to work as female prostitutes. Um, and opening opening up to as many markets as possible. Yeah, yeah. Well, the one that I'm thinking of preferred the um, the men who liked women to the men who liked she-males. I, I think she thought that the ones who liked she-males I don't know that they treated her differently as as a very interesting. So yeah. this is this is a, a, an obvious uh, follow up, which is: is this a new category of sexual orientation? Are these people closer to gay people, or are they closer to straight people? Great question. And so I can answer the second part of that question. They are very close to straight people. They are not at all gay. Guys, guys who get into shemales. So if we bring these guys in the lab and we show them pornography featuring just women and the, the kind that we use in this situation is two women having sex with each other, female, female porn, and male, male, male porn. Uh, and th those are the kind, best kind of uh, stimuli because... If somebody gets aroused, there's no ambiguity about who they're getting aroused by. Um, guys who are into shemales get aroused to the females, but not the males. But they get slightly more aroused to videos of two shemales getting it on. And that's a little different than typical straight men who get more aroused by two females and two shemales, but neither gynandromorphophiles nor regular straight men get aroused to two men getting it on. Right. 
Next, ne- next obvious follow-up question to that is, I've heard you say that heterosexual women are genitally indifferent. What does that mean? I, I would say not just genitally indifferent. They're, they, I think that their conscious feelings are indifferent in the laboratory to erotica. So if we bring women into the lab and we show them the same kinds of stimuli, two men having sex, two women having sex. Straight women show an indifferent pattern of genital arousal. They get equally aroused to both by both and they get, and they say they get equally aroused by both. Now they don't get that aroused psychologically. They don't, straight women do not get as aroused to watching either kinds of erotic stimuli that I just mentioned as either straight men do or gay men do. But it is interesting that they seem to show this flat pattern. Lesbians, in contrast, do show both a genital preference and a subjective preference for female stimuli. Is there a vestigial arousal among lesbians for men? Lesbians do get more aroused by male stimuli than they do to nature scenes. (laughs) But what about, do they get more aroused to gay men than gay men do to lesbians? These questions are hard to answer. Uh, and these are the studies they, that we need, Michael. These are the these are the hard, yeah, hard yeah, charging no. questions that we need. Well, they're, they're hard to answer because the kinds of apparatus that you must use to measure genital arousal in men differs from that that you must use to measure it in women. And the best evidence that we have, uh, we've taken it out of the genitals into the brain. We've done uh, fMRI scanning of um, people looking at erotic stimuli. And it pretty much shows the same patterns as the genital stuff does. And your excellent question, I, I, I... think I'm going to have to hold off answering because I don't remember. <laughs> That's fine. So we kind of, I, I remember I, um, I had a conversation with Christina Durante and she taught me about a study where they brought um, women into a lab and they sat them down opposite uh, uh, two different guys. One guy was really nerdy, and one guy was kind of a bad boy, leather jacket and sort of like coiffed hair and stuff like that. And they analyzed the verbal responses and the um, physical responses that women had to each of these different men. Now, they had a Oscar-winning film writer, some award-winning film writer, write the script that the 
gentleman actor was using. So it's like, you know, if you were going to cut it, the cool guys, like, if you come with me, I'll show you the best night of your life and it's going to be really cool. But I don't really care. So it kind of, it doesn't really matter so much. But very, very high status, prestige, prestige, prestige. Uh, whereas on the other hand, the other guy was something else. Now, the interesting thing is it was the same guy. The same guy was playing both roles. They just styled him differently and his mannerisms had been adjusted. One of the th- most interesting takeaways was there was a, uh, a number of uh, lesbian, female-attracted women who were in the study. And when they looked at their behavior with the lower status man, it seemed relatively straightforward. When they looked at their behavior with the highest status man, even though they had a self-report of not being attracted to him and their uh, verbal uh, behavior wasn't particularly forthcoming, their non-verbal behavior was much more flirtatious. So they were playing with the hair more, they were kind of leaning in, they were pouting a little bit more. And what that kind of suggested to me, which I think kind of leads into some of your work, is that even for women who are not attracted to men, for a very long time, men have been the gatekeepers to so much with regards to survivability, reproduction, protection, resources, etc., that it feels like even exclusively female attracted women just keep this skill set in the locker room somewhere where if they need to deploy it because the chieftains come over and she's just finished up with her girlfriend that nobody knows about secretly in a in a cave somewhere uh that she can still kind of turn it on uh, and i thought that that was really interesting that is really interesting i wasn't familiar with that also i think that Lesbians, women who identify as lesbians are not as exclusively female attracted as gay men are male attracted, even if they might deny that. Uh, Lesbians are more likely than gay men to become non lesbian, (laughs) Uh, you know, relapse to go back. Yeah, there's. a researcher named Lisa Diamond, who has studied something she calls female fluidity, which refers to women's greater propensity to, um, I don't know, become romantically interested in somebody regardless of their natal sex. And not, not all women do this. And there are some, you know, let's say gold star lesbians who, uh, would never uh, go for a man. But I think there are more lesbians who have the capacity for sexual attraction to men. Okay, so in in your opinion then, is male's sexual, men's sexual orientation is more fixed and women's is is more malleable? Absolutely, and that's, that's part of the reason why men, but not women, not many women, have paraphilias, which are these weird sexual interests, autogynophilia is a paraphilia, but some others are, for example, uh, pedophilia, sexual attraction to children. What's the, what's the amputee one? What's that one? Uh, that is called acrotomophilia. Thank you. Yeah. Right. Yes. Which we've been studying there's, um, and, and zoophilia attraction to animals, uh, li- lipophilia, which is uh, attraction to morbidly obese people and the guys who are into them, 
tend to be just normal weight guys. Uh, and we, we just, we have a paper that is about to be published. It's uh, accepted and I'm working on the proofs now, which I think is, he modestly says, I think it's very interesting. Uh, but we studied, we, we studied guys into amputees, guys into animals, and guys into the really huge fat people. And for each of these three kinds of paraphilias, a lot of these guys also have the inversion. They mm. are sexually aroused by the idea of becoming yes, an I... a fat person, an animal, uh, which, you know, and, and I think we have about 10 guys into amputees who've actually managed somehow to get amputations. Wow. So I first learned this from Dr. James Cantor yeah. and spoke to him about it. And, and he described it in this really lovely way, which was um, a lot of the sexual, let's just call it, a lot of the paraphilias that people have and, and, and the odd fetishes that people are turned on by um, is reflected both outwardly and inwardly. So there are people who are attracted to amputees. There are people who see themselves as amputees. They have their limbs. They have all of their limbs, but they feel like they should not. They feel like they shouldn't have that. He also, uh, I don't know whether you believe that this is true, said that there are people who are attracted to children, and there are people who see themselves as children. There are men often we, who want to be dressed did, up as babies. We did the first study of this. Kevin, my... PhD student Kevin Sue and I did a first study of autopedophilia, and that's right. Uh, and the most ethical form of pedophilia. <laughs> yeah, and one a really interesting finding of that um, study was that men, some of these men are attracted to boys, some are attracted to girls. Well, the the guys who are attracted to girls are sexually aroused by the idea of being a little girl, not a little boy, which is interesting. Mm, so you have, it, it, that is a great way to prove that the relationship outwardly and inwardly is the same yeah. because otherwise you wouldn't have this relationship between the two. That's so interesting. Why is everyone not a sex researcher? Why is everyone <laughs> not doing paraf paraphilia sex I research? I feel the same way. Yeah. It's so interesting. Oh, okay. So in your opinion, does bisexuality truly exist in men? Like how, how accurate do you think the stereotype is that bisexual women are really straight and that bisexual men are really gay? In, I think it was 2005, we published a paper um, that failed to find evidence that male bisexuality truly existed where by that, I mean that men in the laboratory would show arousal to both men and to women. Uh, that did not, make, did not make us popular. We were, um, you know, it got us into the news, but not liked. We have kept studying this by we, uh, I and my then graduate student, now he's a professor in England, Gerolf Rieger, and we've uh, gotten several hundred, uh, several hundred 
subjects in the lab. And uh, two years ago, we published in Proceedings of Na National Academy of Sciences uh, a paper in which we showed beyond the shadow of a doubt that male bisexuality truly exists. Um, there is a subset of bisexual men who clearly produce arousal to male stimuli and to female stimuli. Most of them are somewhat more aroused by one sex than by the other. They're not exactly... It's a predominantly yeah. gay or a predominantly straight yeah. bisexual man. Yeah, yeah. But they're, they're a bit bisexual, yes. So I now believe for sure in male bisexuality. At the same time, if you talk to gay men, ask, just ask them this question, did you ever say you were bisexual? About half of gay men will say, yeah. Then you say, well, were you really bisexual? And they'll say, no. <laughs> so it really does happen that some men misrepresent being bisexual. But it also seems to happen that some men are bisexual, as I would understand that. Understood. But it's a, a, a small cohort. And also, you it's difficult to stress test whether this is the thin end of the wedge en route to becoming a fully-fledged member of the gay community or whether you're actually going to just stop at the letter B. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, what, what about environmental influences on sexual orientation. So we have at the moment uh, in Korea, a very sort of sex negative culture, which you'll probably be familiar with, where there is the four Bs movement, women who are recanting. I can't remember what the four different Bs stand for. It's in Korean, uh, but it's, it's men and patriarchy and family and work or kids or something like that. And it is downstream of a whatever, less than one birth rate and it kind of just, it's everything's career is just a mess but that seems like uh, whether it be outright celibacy slash abstinence or uh, uh turning to lesbianism i don't know whether that's true um that is a sexual orientation response to an ecological or environmental cue right something has happened that has changed maybe the sex ratio, maybe the um, mate value of the uh, potential available partners that are around. Downstream from that, we have declining birth rates across the West too. We have uh, a, an increasing cohort of high-performing women and an increasing cohort of underperforming men. Hypergamously, that means that maybe women are going to be struggling to find men that are of the mate value that they would desire, even though we're in a society which has been the most sort of sex positive uh, ostensibly than it's ever been. I think that there is a bit of a sex recession going on. There's a great um, uh, article in The Atlantic about this. So with all of this folded together, how how malleable is sexual orientation in response to the local environment? And could you foresee a future given where we're at sexually and with the mating crisis at the moment that this could continue in the future? <clears throat> this is another one of those times when it's important to distinguish male and female sexuality. And this is what I'm going to say is speculative because this hasn't been established and 
there's a lot of disagreement. But my gut sense is that men's sexuality is not going to be responsive to cultural pressure much. I, I say much because there are parts of the world where men will have sex with other men, other males. Let's not call them men. If the males are presenting as very feminine and perhaps transgender. So, for example, in Samoa, there's uh, natal males who are considered a third sex called the Fafafina. And you got the lady boys in Thailand and so on. It's pretty common for just plain old straight men to have sex with these natal males. Now, I don't think that makes them gay. They're not having sex with men. They're seeing these people as female-like. But I don't think there's anything, any kind of cultural change. Even if I could build society from the ground up, that would make straight men want to have sex with each other. <laughs> uh I think women are likely different and more responsive to cultural factors. Uh, and perhaps also things like um, bad experiences with men. There's a, uh, you know, this belief that uh, one route to lesbianism is being mistreated by men. We don't know that's true, but I find it plausible. But I don't think that uh, women mistreating men is going to make them go gay. No, that's fascinating. Uh, one thing that I've been considering a lot is you've been talking about the thin line between what being gay means physically and what it means in terms of appearance. You know, there's an interesting question. Is a very voluptuous big boob, big lips, long hair, um, Thailand ladyboy type presenting person, more female than a very shaven head, uh, sort of more androgynous body type, but vagina owning woman. And there's a really interesting question going on here, you know, that you highlighted there. It is uh, in Samoa, it's referred to as a third gender. You know, there's a lot of um, accusations from the left of genital fetishism, which you might have heard of, which is that you're actually being, uh, you're, you're addicted to the genitals as opposed to the pre presentation. But there is an interesting question, given that our sexuality is so easily fooled we are such rampant sexual beings that a six inch by four inch screen that has a small depiction of sex happening on it is enough to fool our brain to think there's some sex happening here. No, there isn't. There was some sex happening there a long time ago. And now you can see around the side of it. You know that it's not here. You know that you're not getting any of this. It's, and that, that illusion is responsible for the internet. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So 
my point being that you you already concede as soon as you accept the fact that porn is an effective stimuli you accept the fact that it is not exclusively about the action it's about the presentation right is it just a difference of degree not a difference of kind all the way down to the more female presenting regardless of whether it's a xx or xy chromosome person it it really starts to blur the line between what is and is not classed as a, a same sex or an opposite sex attracted sexual orientation yeah i think that all we have for the most part are our senses are and you know men especially but humans in general are very visual species and um, you're absolutely right that some trans women even those who still have a penis uh, can look uh, quite <laughs> they look like really attractive women uh, although often you can kind of see the remnants of their maleness and their bone structure or something like that but uh, yeah I and I, I think that in those cases, men who don't feel attracted to them or say they don't, um, that's more likely to be uh, mental, um, you know, some kind of aversion, an idea. Like that person is a man, not a woman. So despite the fact that they look like a really attracted woman, I can't go there. Um, yeah, it's so fascinating because I've seen this, you know, I've seen this argument happen on, on dating shows or, or on, uh, right wing commentary channels and stuff like that around, uh, no, because that would be gay. I'm like, is it, <laughs> is it more gay to have sex with what looks like a nine out of 10 woman body shape, size, voice, presentation, actions, everything with a penis than it is to have the exact opposite. All of the presentation factors of a man could be on testosterone, could be all of the rest of it, but has a vagina. That it, and it's a really, really fascinating question. Uh, you know, this sort of it falls in line with a number of other arguments. This sort of more biological essentialism side of things, especially the people that would say, um, unless you can change your chromosomes, and even not then, if you're a natal male, I'm calling you a man. If you're a natal female, I'm calling you a woman for the rest of time. Um, so I, it's a, a suite of beliefs, I suppose, all of which interplay with each other and, and would also cascade down from there. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a really, really fascinating consideration around what it means. And this is when you get into the deeper and deeper into the layers of paraphilia and, and the nuances of sexual orientation. It all kind of starts to break apart it's like the quantum level of of uh sex research i suppose yes yes we we are going on the outskirts here <laughs> um what about people's gaydars do you think that most of us have an accurate gaydar yeah this is again something we've studied quite a bit uh and yeah people have a much better than chance uh, gaydar. Now it's not perfect, but they are much better at than chance at discerning whether a man is gay or straight. And they rely 
so gay men, you know, just their outward appearance in the West currently is not necessarily very feminine. Although I, I, I think gay men might present themselves more attractively than straight men, but it's more things like movement, you know, and speech, speech patterns are. Yeah. You found that there's, a, there's like a gay accent. There's a gay accent. Yes. What is the gay accent? <laughs> we, so we, we know it when we hear it and, and, you know, actors can often affect a gay accent, even if they're straight. Uh, there's interestingly, there's uh, a lesbian accent too. I, I think a gay accent may tend to be more expressive, and gay men articulate more clearly than straight men, and lesbians have the opposite. They're less expressive and they don't articulate as clearly. Do you think? Is that in any way gay men modeling female speech patterns? Are there any parallels there? Yeah, you you ask great questions, and the, you know, no, so nobody knows. And I, I think there are two, at least two, good hypotheses there. One is that unconsciously growing up, gay men, you know, some of them they had somewhat feminine gender identity and they did model uh the other is that there's something about gay men's brain which is somewhat mm. feminized and produces this speech pattern mm. nobody knows <clears throat> well when it comes to the uh, ability to present clearly my speech coach that i use for the podcast is gay uh classically trained in theater classically trained in improv uh for not just an outrageous communicator and probably the best communicator that I've had on the show is Douglas Murray, who is also a, a him and miles, my speech coach are like two peas in a pod that have never met. Um, but just phenomenal, like at, out of yeah. this world precision with his ability to, um, remain cool under pressure, uh, to be able to communicate in a very precise way, um, to be able to use, inflection and drama and whimsy and to then be able to pull it back without being uh fragile just phenomenal and so yeah i i i wonder uh, andrew doyle as well satirist from the uk that runs the titania mcgrath a uh, twitter account yeah, i wonder I, yeah. I wonder whether um being gay is a competitive advantage in the world of online commentary perhaps <laughs> um but yeah it's it, all of that stuff so interesting and you're right as well that you kind of I, w I don't think I've been around sufficient lesbians to be able to say that I would I could pick up on that. Um, the only real things that I ever notice with lesbians are sort of the it's the dress. I think that uh, lesbian lesbians seem to dress significantly more differently to normal women than gays cut, do to normal men. Yeah, yeah, the the plaid yeah. shirts, the baggy yeah. jeans. Um, yeah, gay, gay men uh, dress somewhat differently, more stylishly, at least. In it's the just West. better, usually. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, very funny. What was that paper that you did about male mate value being more malleable than female mate <laughs> value? Well, that's an old one. 
Um, yeah, the student who was the lead author on that was interested in the ex explaining the sex difference in the in depression. Women are more likely to get depressed than men are, and she hypothesized that it could be because you know women's mate value is more tied to their looks, which she said you can't do that much about whereas men it's their accomplishments which you can and um and she got some evidence for that i'm not sure that i that that's you know an old paper and i'm not sure i believe the theory because you know if women if women really can't do that much uh about their looks what's the cosmetics in industry doing i mean uh and you know it's it's not that easy for a man to go out and double his income. So um, anyway, but that that's what the paper was about. Yeah, so I find I had a conversation with Ed Hagen as well recently, and Ed did a study where they controlled for upper body strength when looking at differences in depression and anxiety. And when you control for upper body strength, the differences between men and women get smaller and smaller and smaller and then essentially go away. Um, and the, the, the reason that I was interested in discussing uh, malleability of mate value is that it's, it's a common discussion that's had on the internet and it's born out of a contest between men and women about who's got it worse. It's like, well, it's easy for you because you just need to go and get a boob job, but I can't make myself any tall, taller. And women would say, well, it's easy for you because, you know, at 21, I reach my peak sexual market value and it's all downhill from there and you get to continue to accrue status and resources. And it's very much sort of um, two people talking different languages that the sexual brains, the, the, the sexual attraction mechanism that works for men, what they want from women and for women, what they want from men are not the same. It's not, it, you can't play... Uh, a, a balancing act here. There is no ability to work out the, the equity. There's no exchange rate between these two. Like how many boob jobs is three inches of height worth? Do you know what I mean? Like <laughs> right. there is no way of us doing that. Oh, well you could wear high heels and put makeup on, but you can go out for five years and increase your earning potential by 40%. Like what, what does that even mean when we're talking about this? Um, I had a theory, which I th may be total horse shit. So I'm going to try and bring it back up again. I had a theory that um, male mate value to the individual to the individual is more malleable and to the group is less malleable, and female individual mate value is less uh, less malleable and to the group it's more malleable. That you basically have as a man, there are more degrees of freedom that you can move yourself on. Uh, and there is a longer timeline that you can do it on specifically because of the fact that, you know, a guy who's 35 is more attractive than a guy who's 25 to most women on average. Yeah. And I don't know when that peaks, probably in your mid, mid to late 30s, perhaps. Um, but even then, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio has been uh, acquiring and disposing of under 25 year old girlfriends <laughs> regularly for like two decades now. Um, so with sufficient status and, and resources, you can continue to cycle through that. Um, 
But yeah, what what do you what's your mindset at now when it comes to malleability, especially with us facing this mating crisis and and people having concerns around uh, being able to be seen by the other sex? Well, I I think that in the sense that I understand you, I think we're probably very malleable. The culture has changed tremendously, you know, in a fairly short time, and it's going to guessing it will change tremendously still. I hope it changes back in certain ways because I'm not that happy with certain things now. But that's a different question than do I know how to change it? And I do not. Um, and that that has to do with male-female interactions as much as academic freedom, both of which, well, the latter concerns me more now. <laughs> Michael Bailey, ladies and gentlemen. Michael, I really, really appreciate your work. Any opportunity to dig into people that are looking into sex is is fascinating for me. I've immensely enjoyed talking to you. I, I hope that we get uh, more chances either in person or back here, whatever. I have, pleasure. I have a laundry list of things that we didn't get to talk about to do with sexual arousal patterns, virtuous pedophiles, uh, the... <laughs> A birth order effect of homosexuality so we can absolutely run this back let me know once your new paper is out uh as a reminder for the people who want to check out your article and also follow you online and stuff like that where should they go where would you want to direct them i am a boring academic uh we you can go to google scholar and search for j michael bailey or there's something called ResearchGate where uh, you can find lots of my papers as well uh, or email me uh, at my uh, university address. It's jm-bailey, B-A-I-L-E-Y, at northwestern.edu, and uh, and I'll try to help you if you need it. Uh, yeah, n- nothing fancy for me. Michael, I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.